This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Dawson Tire and Wheel, their premier ag tire and wheel provider in North America. Get a grip. Lord, it's the same old tune, fiddle and guitar. Where do we take it from here? Rhinestone suits and new shiny cars. It's been the same way for years. We need to change. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 102. On this episode, my guest is Delaney Howe, and I'm sure you're familiar with Delaney. Um, she has several podcasts um, that she does and, and uh, working on a on a podcast network, so I'll let her explain that a little better. But Delaney, welcome to the show. Thanks, Casey. Thanks for having me. That's my pleasure. So let's talk about your uh, the podcast that you have and the podcast network that you're getting ready to, to launch here. Awesome. Thanks so much for the plug. So Mike Pearson and I started the podcast Ag News Daily. We started it about a year, year and a half ago, a little more than a year and a half ago. And it's a daily podcast, 30 minutes in length, and we focus on pretty much anything across agriculture. We kind of cover the gamut of news, trade, policy, commodities, interesting farmer stories. Um, So we like to just shake it up a little bit, but definitely focusing on the news and what's going on kind of day to day in agriculture. And then we're also launching a podcast network here in about a week, week and a half, two weeks. And it's going to be called the Global Ag Network. And basically what we're doing is we've gone out and searched for podcasts focused around agriculture. And we want to bring them together in one community, basically, for podcasting. So helping them market and monetize and brand podcasts. And we want to position ourselves to be kind of like the next big thing in in ag media and that's a network around podcasting because we think kind of those are the next we see that as the next really big trend here in agriculture for people to get news and information as like, you know, the millennials and the young people come back to the farm. Yep. No, I think podcast is a is a great way to to get information out there. It's it really mm-hmm. it's replaced all the just the commercial soaked um, TV that you get to watch anymore or radio that you get to listen to anymore. So I think the uh, the long form idea there of podcasts have really uh has exploded over the last couple of years yeah, and it's really taken I do off. Too. yeah absolutely i agree the podcast uh network you started here one of my favorite podcasts on there is uh dryline farmer podcast yeah those guys are yep. those make me laugh they get me through my wednesday so <laughs> uh, they're not really politically correct but they certainly have a good time and uh we like them we wanted them definitely to be part of the network yeah, so they just bring kind of some spice to agriculture i think yep they do they make it uh make it fun so yeah they I, do i enjoy that yeah. a lot so well talk to me a little bit about your background and how you got to this point in your life Sure. So I grew up on a farm in southeast Iowa, pretty near the Iowa City Muscatine area. And I lived on a row crop farm. We did, we still do um, raise corn and soybeans, a little bit of cover crops and some winter wheat every now and then. And we also do custom background feeding. So we run right about a thousand head of feeder cattle in feed and covered hoop shed buildings, but we've kind of done everything under the sun. I mean, at one point we had hogs, we raised for Nyman Ranch. We have had 
uh, goats that we raised as 4-H projects. We have chickens. So we've kind of dabbled in really everything, but primarily focusing on cattle and crops. Um, So I, I grew up with a passion for agriculture. And it's funny, my dad always makes fun of my oldest brother and myself. And he's like, really, out of all three of my kids, I figured you two would be the least likely to be involved in ag. And now my oldest brother works on the farm with my dad. And I've kind of taken a career here in ag media. So it's, you never know really what's going to happen. But after um, high school, I went to Northwest Missouri State and got a degree in agricultural science with a minor in broadcasting and international studies. And then decided to do my master's degree online through Texas Tech. So I'll be finishing that up here in December through uh, tech for agricultural communications. And so I just do a bunch of ag media stuff. I stepped in as host of Market to Market, which is a PBS ag national agribusiness show back here in February. So I've been doing that about, oh, what, seven or eight months now. And then Mike and I have the podcast. Um, I do some freelance media for... AgriPulse, This Week in Agribusiness, Your Ag Network, and a couple other smaller publications. But I just really like talking to farmers, talking to producers, getting agriculture's story out there, and then also helping connect, you know, some of the the people working out in the field or working day to day that don't have the connections in DC or know what's going on always in DC. I like to help connect those two groups together and kind of bridge that gap because there's definitely no shortage of topics right now. No, that's for sure. There's plenty of stuff to talk about, and yeah. there's there's no lack of it. But I was gonna, I will say that um, I like I like what you and Mike are doing. I like that podcast. I get a lot Thank of good information you. from that, and yeah. I've had the chance of uh, having Mike be a speaker at, at mm-hmm. one of the events I put together, and, and uh, he's he's a wealth of knowledge, and he's he's a good speaker too. I mean, the guy's got a lot of. A lot of charisma, and he's he he's, does. He's funny. He's got good stories to tell, you know. So I gotta keep him on a leash sometimes, I can, but I can rein him that. back in. I can see how that would be a be something you'd have to do there. So, <laughs> all right, so let's jump into a little bit of trade talk. You know, we've this, sure. this trade thing's been going on for a while now, and mm-hmm. and it's uh, you know, punch me, I'm gonna punch you back type mentality. I think they have when they Trump administration and. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Chinese and, and how that, that whole thing is working out. We've been seeing some stagnation there when you look at pricing, but I'm more concerned about what happens after the first of the year when right. um, the scheduled you know yearly export of soybeans to China starts to starts to happen. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? So, in the conversation that you've had with with uh, the powers that be and, and the people in the know, what, what's the feel of the of the trade situation right now? Yeah, you know, I think from a producer standpoint, we're kind of in a mixed bag here. I think talking to a lot of producers, some are in the mindset of, oh, it's going to get resolved. It's not that big of a deal. We're going to see it taken care of by the end of this year in December here. And then we have kind of the opposite end of that and producers who are overly worried and overly planning ahead. And I'm not going to say overly planning ahead, but are definitely taking it a lot more serious. And I think that those producers that are taking it serious are probably in the right mindset because I do not think it's going to be resolved by the end of this year. I mean, we've seen a couple lower level rounds of trade talks between the U.S. and China, but at the end of the day, we're really, I don't think we're really seeing any moves here. I mean, at least we have now some new trade talks in the works with Japan, the recent announcement that the U.S. and Japan were now going to be um, negotiating some bilateral trade talks. We're hopefully getting closer to either a bilateral trade deal with Mexico 
or possibly getting Canada to step in last minute and resolve NAFTA. So I think we have a couple of good things going for us. The EU has definitely picked up on soybean exports for this year, but it's not enough to fill the void that China would fill at this point in time. And then when you look at what's going on in China, we've got the African swine fever situation. And I was at a conference yesterday in Kansas City. AgriPulse puts on an annual Ag Outlook Forum, and they had a lot of great speakers there. But one of the folks was talking about the African swine fever and said, if China culls their hog herd from by even 5 to 10% of their hog herd, if they cull it just 5 to 10%, that's the equivalency of what they would usually source from the U.S. in soybeans. So add that factor in there, and it's not looking very positive for U.S. soybeans. Right. Yep. The the one thing that I I found to be a little bit disheartening um, was when you know we had the Chinese had that scheduled talk and they postponed mm-hmm. it till after the midterm election in, in November, which is yeah. a political move. And I think that, that that was absolutely a political move. Yeah, that was no doubt in my mind. That was that was a calculated thing. That wasn't on. You know, our schedule got full, so now we have to move back. Yeah. It was a calculated thing. But be- I mean, I think I think producers need to know, too, China is setting themselves up to be the number one nation. I mean, they have this mission called China 2025. And so I encourage folks listening to, uh, to do your own research on that. But basically, China's investing infrastructure in other countries like Brazil and Africa and they're trying to create state-run organizations to compete in the global marketplace. And state-run organizations don't function the same way that a capitalist organization would. They get state-allocated dollars. The state helps them. Like if they were to file bankruptcy, the state would go in then, of course, and fund them or, or help give them some help. And China is trying to do this by 2025. So I think that whether or not you agree with President Trump's stances on things, I'm not sure tariffs were the best way to go about this. But at the end of the day, I think China needs to be held responsible. And this was apparently the best way President Trump thought that was to be. So I'm not sure I agree with tariffs as the best standpoint. But I think something needed to be done. The one thing I think is going to have a bigger effect on the trade thing is is China's overall economy. So. If you look at the economy right now, their stock market's off about 20% since since yeah. before the uh, tariffs started. And I think this last round of tariffs that we put in, I think there might be another quarter billion dollars worth of tariffs to to uh, to slap on stuff. And, mm-hmm. and we'd pretty much have tariff on everything. And there would you know pretty much across the board. Yeah. You know, how, how long are they let, well, willing to let it affect their economy before they have come back to the table a little bit with, a, all right, let's figure think- this out. I know. I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because they're obviously a communist government. They are whatever, socialist, communist, whatever you want to say. I am curious to see, because I imagine at some point in time, their people are going to start, maybe not going hungry, but they're going to have a hard time buying food or feeding all of the mouths that they have in China because it's the world's largest population. And they get a lot of food stuff from the United States. And not only that, but the United States has the safest food source. So, you know, there's this uh, old principle that when people go hungry, things start to go bad and people start to revolt. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if the Chinese people place some pressure on the Chinese government to, you know, get back to the negotiating table or will 
will the Chinese government finally decide, okay, we don't want to let our people starve. We probably need to have some sort of talk with the U.S. Um, I, I don't know. I think that though that's kind of what I'm watching right now, but I don't know if we'll ever really know what's going on because they control their media. I mean, it's very, very censored. Even with like the African swine flu thing, I wonder, or swine fever, I wonder how many outbreaks they've actually had and how much they're releasing to kind of the global public. I don't know. I think I don't have any answers, but I think those are some things that I'm watching for sure. Yeah, they're they're not the most forthcoming people when you start looking no. at, at the information they give you. I mean, I don't know if it's the 80-20 rule, just to, you don't know which part you're actually getting, the 80 or the 20, right. you know? Yeah. And it's been that way with their economy, with their currency, with I mean, across the board. They've they've just, yeah. they've they've been not necessarily up front with the world when it came to all the things they're doing and, and now it's getting harder to, to kind of hide those things because of the situation that we see. So what are some of the long term effects you see from this trade situation? I mean, mm-hmm. China has to buy soybeans from us. I mean, there's not enough soybeans right. in the world that they can source other places. I mean, they ultimately have to buy them from us. Are they Unless they cull a lot more of their herd. I mean, if the African swine fever thing picks up and they keep having to get rid of hogs, cull hogs, whatever, I think that that's a serious concern. I mean, I don't know what they're doing to curb this at this point. They say that they're stopping transportation from points that have had outbreaks so that theoretically it wouldn't spread, but it can spread through other things besides just the hogs. I mean, it can spread through other animals. It can spread through wild hogs. So I think that's something that could have some long-term implications. And then, as I mentioned, when you look at it from a Chinese perspective, they're investing infrastructure and money into places like Brazil and Argentina, some of our biggest competitors for soybeans, trying to set themselves up so that if this happened again, they don't have to turn to the U.S., and at this point, I think they still do have to source U.S. soybeans. But if they continue to invest infrastructure in Brazil and Argentina, if Brazil keeps pushing on and transitioning some of those acres from rainforest to farm ground, I think eventually they're going to be able to, I, I hope not, but I, I think it's a possibility that they'll be able to provide China with most, if not all, of their soybean needs. So I think long term, that's something we got to keep an eye on. And then from a U.S. perspective, you know, it's really sad, but I've already heard producers who are nervous about going out of business this year or the next couple of years because this trade stuff isn't obviously, um, it's not good for business and for farmers that haven't marketed ahead or haven't marketed enough ahead. I think it's a real concern. Um, I mean, we do have at this point, you know, the market facilitation program that the government has at least stepped in and recognized, yes, we we see you, we see the farmers' complaints, we see that we've screwed up some of your market balance here, but it's not really enough. I mean, you're not going to make a lot of money off of it. Corn is only getting a penny per bushel on 50% of your harvested acres. Soybeans, I think, are getting $1.65. It's not enough to to make up for what it would have been if you would have just gotten, you know, free and fair trade in the, in the first place. So I I see that as another long-term implication. And I, I don't know, I think prices could be stagnant here for the next year, two years, three years, depending on how long it takes to resolve this deal with China. And when you look at long-term implications, 
okay, great. Let's say China comes back to the table and we start to renegotiate in January, February, March of next year. I I still think we're going to have a long road ahead of us to rebuild that trade relationship. I mean, look how many years it took to get a small portion of U.S. beef back into China. I think that we've damaged this relationship, unfortunately. But at the same time, it's, it's hard because, you know, they have been stealing intellectual property um, they've been stealing a lot of technology from the U.S., so it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, you want them to be held accountable, but at the same time, it's also hurting some of our trade relationship. I think with them long term. So, yep. it's a little bleak right now. It's hard to hard to have um, some optimism when you go talk to producers sometimes when all this is going on. But yep. I think that's the reality of it. From 2013 till till now is is really been the slide in the economy. You know, mm-hmm. and. In 14, I was saying, you know, it's a typical thing. It'll last five to seven years, just like everything else has in the past, and we're going to work our way out of it. And I really feel like we've hit the bottom. We've hit a bottom uh, of the overall economy as far as as where we're at, and it's going to take something catastrophic, you know, to to make it drop further. Um, There's not going to be a gradual slide anymore, I don't think. I think it's going to be, you know, if you look at the markets, you can see the the kind of bouncing across the bottom when you look at that pricing, you know, one day's down, next day's up, might stay mm-hmm. up for a couple of days, might stay down for a couple of days, but there's that bouncing across the bottom, you know, for lack of a better term. If the trade thing doesn't get taken care of in the next 12 months, you know, we go, we go through the winter and into the next, next spring um, when planning starts and there's still an issue there. I got to think that's, that would be uh one of those beginnings of a catastrophic event that could cause a slide further down. I mean, what's, what's your opinion of that? Yeah. You know, I, I think I would agree. I think there are some external factors that we really can't ever account for. Like if the administration does get some new trade deals in place with Japan, with the EU, hopefully get NAFTA wrapped up. I think those are all very optimistic and will help pick up some of the slack, but not enough slack, uh, to what China currently does or currently will be doing, would be doing at this point in the year if trade was normal with them. I think next year we see a lot of acres from soybeans switched to corn, cotton, wheat, because the the ratio for profit is just not there for soybeans. And I think it's hard for producers to go into that knowing not knowing what the implications are yet uh, because we don't know if, when, if and when trade trade uh, is going to get resolved. So it's interesting. I, I've heard from a couple of market analysts and um, folks who do kind of more of the economy side of things. I, they, they don't think we're at, to the, uh, at 1980 farm crisis levels yet, but they're definitely seeing some patterns and trends that would indicate that we're potentially setting ourselves up for another cyclical cycle like that. And I think that's uh, really scary. So I'm going to go on a slight soapbox here for a second. I, I really think it, it's important for producers at this point in time to understand their bottom dollar, understand you know what you have to put in, what's your input cost, and how much do you need to make to break even. And when you get prices that show that you're breaking even, show that you're making money, I would take them because who knows what's going to happen in a month from now, a year from now. So if you know what what you need to survive, what you need to make money on... I definitely wouldn't hold out and think, oh, we're going to get a rally. Oh, there's going to be a better price later because in this uncertain trade climate, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. No, that's that's a great point. I mean, if you're making money, sell. 
And if it goes back up again, sell it again. You know what I mean? It's right. Just, uh, there's there's no need. Like you said, it's so these these rallies that we have are twenty four hour rallies. Yeah. You know, maybe forty eight hours. You know, I I do a thing with Chip Nellinger, uh in the morning, and we talk about you know what's happening in the markets and how that looks and and what's going on there, and it's you know it's all driven by a tweet or a mm-hmm. uh, a new report that comes out. And I know. I mean, it's just it's so very just cyclical in 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 the news cycle it's a 24-hour news cycle and mm-hmm. that's about how long these these rallies are going to last it seems like that we've been watching go and you need to be you know the plan is so important that when you see that coming make sure you do it make sure it happens and, yeah and, yeah make sure you execute that plan yeah, absolutely absolutely so that that is a good segue into what we kind of the what we've been talking about here we've hit on a little bit um but the overall health of the economy that we see out there in the ag ag environment right now. So mm-hmm. I watch, you know, being on the equipment side, <clears throat> we see guys, um, some guys are getting bigger. Some guys are, are retiring and saying, you know what, there's nothing for anyone to come back to. And if they did come back, there's not enough here for me to retire on and them to live on. So um, I'm going to just cash print my ground out and be that go, you know, go on my, my, my merry way and enjoy life. Then you have the guys that are getting squeezed out. Yeah. Every time there's a downturn, some of this stuff happens, you know. And um, right now, when I, I look out there, I see that that three thousand acre farmer is the one that's really being squeezed the hardest, just because of their ability to compete in the marketplace mm-hmm. and and how the, how hard that is becoming. Um, what's your feel for that, and and what do you see out there, and, and how do you kind of interpret what's going on out in the ag economy right now? I mean. At this point, what do we have? Maybe 240,000 farmers in the entire U.S. I think it's something like 240,000, somewhere right in there. That number, I think, is going to get smaller if we keep seeing trade stuff like this. But I think one bright spot is a lot of farmers have recognized this and and have been looking for opportunities to diversify their operations, to not raise just your traditional corn and soybeans and hogs and cattle. They're looking for ways to make extra money by raising maybe organics or doing some sort of farm to table or marketing directly to their consumers or, or to their retailers. I think that at this point you kind of maybe need to start looking at that stuff, especially if you're a smaller farmer, which is awful and that's not the way it should be. I don't think that we should be in a system that creates winners or losers, but it, it feels like right now you either have to get big, you have to diversify or you have to throw in the towel. And I think that's so unfortunate because we're losing our farm community and we're becoming further and further removed from the farm and people are less and less understanding of the farm community and farm in, in general. I mean, I live in Des Moines and that's a really metro area and a lot of people don't understand what I do. They don't really probably have any interest in understanding and I'm a little scared for the future of agriculture. I mean, I think there's a lot of good things going, but there's also a lot of uncertainty. So I don't know. I think it's a, a little bleak right now, but I'm hoping maybe we can have some trade stuff in place here with some other countries, maybe give us, you know, some bright spots in agriculture, but yeah, it's, it's a little bleak, Casey. I'm not going to lie to you. How much of interest rate talk have you had with, with the uh, producers and, and then just other you know lenders or, or lawmakers or whoever that might be? How, how much interest rate talk have you had and, and what's the concern there? You know, at this point, I haven't had a lot of interest rate talk. I think from a banking standpoint, 
lenders are going to keep lending money to farms. I mean, because their option is either let the farmer declare bankruptcy and that bank never gets paid back their money or continue loaning to farmers for operating capital and hope that they that we hit an up cycle. I think cash rent could potentially, I don't know, I hope it doesn't increase, but when you look at the amount of farm ground that's, you know, cash rented by folks that don't live on that land. So it's, um, what's the word? Not independent landowners, but landowners that live in, you know, like big cities and are just maybe cash renting out their ground to... Um, like an absentee to, landowner type. Yeah, thing. an absentee landowner. They don't understand what agriculture is going through because the rest of the economy is doing relatively well. I mean, we've seen strength in the rest of the economy since President Trump has gotten into office. It's just agriculture that's having a pretty down time right now. So I think cash rent is a concern from absentee landowners. I think input cost-wise, we're probably we're doing okay there. I think farmers recognize that they don't have a lot of extra this year. They've got to tighten their budget. Um, and, and then when we look at interest rates, the Fed is, of course, increasing inflation rates here over the next year. But I think interest rates will probably hold steady at these rates. From what I've talked to, and like I said, it's been pretty small conversations at this point, but I don't see those raising getting raised a lot at this point just because farmers can't afford it. So if you listen to what, they, what the Fed says, they've talked about maybe raising it two more times before the end of the yeah. year. At, yeah. at a quarter percent and if they maintain the same three times a year deal next year that they've talked about i mean from where i'm at we could be looking at you know six and seven percent interest rates mm-hmm. on just a standard standard that's not counting lease rates or anything else that that's going to be a significant uh a significant strain on yeah on the purchasing of equipment anyway well, I think that's true. And then I think that kind of opens the gate to what what I would call alternative loaners. So people that are working with banks or um, farmers who have higher debt load. I have worked with a couple of alternative lending firms here in Des Moines. There's one called Kintera, and they work specifically with loans or work for loans for farmers who have you know a lot of debt who maybe can't get a traditional loan through a bank. And I see maybe that kind of becoming more of a popular thing, an alternative loan or a type B kind of a loan where it's a longer term fixed rate. And maybe that's an option for farmers who want to continue farming, but don't have the operating capital at this point in time. What do you think about the, uh, the buying groups that have popped up here in the last couple of years? And, and the what, buying groups? Yeah, so like, uh, what's that What's that one called? Something, um, Farmers Network, what's that called? Oh, Farmers Business yeah, Network? Yeah, Farmers Business Network, stuff like that. What, what's your, what's your, the conversation, have you had any conversations mm-hmm. about those with guys, and, and are, are they really, are they starting to see a an expansion to that, or is there still some kind of, I don't know for sure if I really trust this or not. I mean, it seems like it's exploding I think- everywhere I look. It seems like it's just really growing yeah they farmers business network in particular has grown a lot over the last two or three years um we keep a little bit of tabs on them but i think it's interesting because with systems like that they really ask producers to be forthcoming with information like cost revenue etc and farmers for the most part aren't really forthcoming with that kind of information i mean they don't want to share with you their cost of operation and stuff like that so 
I don't know. I think it's interesting. But then I think when you look at, at the younger people like my generation and maybe the generation above me, where I think we're maybe a little more forthcoming with that kind of information and able to rely on each other and seeing each other as resources. So I don't know. I think the future is going to be interesting because as, as this generation starts to take over their family's operations or work in the agribusiness industry and start to become kind of the decision makers, I think things like Farmers Business Network will probably succeed because we are a lot more forthcoming with that than maybe our predecessors and some of our parents and grandparents. Yeah, that is, that is a definite truth. I mean, some of the guys now that I, I work with, um, their fathers and grandfathers aren't necessarily going to open up to you about what's yeah. going on on the farm, you know, and how it's working and what, you know, where it is. And, and sometimes we can have that same conversation with the younger guy and be like, you know, it, it would help us to understand what you're doing. If we mm-hmm. could understand a few things, like, you know, and they, they get it and they let it, <clears throat> they tell you what you, what you want to know. And, and it's not all the hundred percent of everything that they're going to, that they're doing, but they're, they're pretty open with, with sharing information. If they think that mm-hmm. you're going to be able to help them, you know what I mean? Yeah. If, if they're not, if they don't get that feel from you, then, you know, they don't, they're going to help. They're going to give you. Information. Yeah. Or if they feel like you're trying to sell them something, they might not be quite as forthcoming, but I think that's everybody would feel like that. All right. So let's talk about one, one more topic here and we'll, and we'll close it down. So, I talk about the future of ag on here quite a bit, especially when it comes to the machines and um, how automation is going to play a bigger mm-hmm. part than it than, yeah. you know, than we can possibly see, and and this and the overall growth of the economy I think is going to be based around um, autonomous you know machines mm-hmm. and how that works. So, what's your opinion of that, and and what's what are some of the uh, things you've seen out there that are going to be some new trends to probably pay attention to over the next couple couple years to five years? I'm really excited about technology from that standpoint of automation, because I think as you look at labor, especially, we struggle to find a consistent source of labor. Um, Immigration and labor reform is a big issue in Congress. So I don't think that that's going to get resolved anytime soon. So then when you look at things like autonomous tractors, that helps cut down on your labor costs on, on trying to find a reliable labor workforce. So I'm really excited. I think there's some cool things coming out to the market. Um, at Farm Progress Show, they had the Tribine tractor, which was like a tractor that w- floats on water. Um, and then another one that we've had on the podcast, on the Ag News Daily podcast before, was Smart Ag, which yeah. is a guy from Iowa State has worked to build a driverless grain cart. So it's basically he's taken kind of like the brains and the guts out of a drone and installed it into a tractor. So the tractor drives the grain cart. So you really would just need somebody to combine. And then the tractor, the grain cart tractor can be controlled from an iPad. So I think that's coming down the pipeline soon. I mean, they're doing a commercial test launch this fall. And then I think, I mean, we're already at auto steer and a lot of combines and tractors. So I think we're probably close to the point where we won't ever need anybody sitting in a combine or a tractor again. And that's going to be really neat. I'm sure there's going to be some years of uh, trial where it's maybe not going to work hundred percent or maybe it'll have some accidents or it'll drive itself into a pond. Who knows? But I think there's some really cool stuff coming down the pipeline. I think it's going to be expensive to start out with as it always is, but hopefully producers see some sort of cost benefit by not having to find workforce and labor 
And I don't know, I think it'll be interesting too, when you look at like the aging population of the farm group, I mean, a lot of farmers are 55 plus. I don't know if this will, if, if, uh, automation stuff like that, will that even raise the farm age more because guys are then thinking, Oh, I don't have to do anything. The tractor will just drive itself. I can farm till I'm 75, 80 now instead. So I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see. I think. No, the smart ag group, I've had them on here and yeah. they're an amazing deal. And uh, here at 21st where I work, we, we've, uh, we're a dealer form now. So, um, hopefully we can, we can get some stuff rolling there and, and it's cool. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And, and for what it costs, it, it yeah. is, it is, it would cost you less to have that, that unit. Um, well, I take that back. It costs you as much to have that unit in a tractor as it would to have a person sitting in that tractor. Mm-hmm. And that's just a one time. And that's going to hopefully get cheaper yeah. of oh, course absolutely. as you yeah. continue on. But yeah, I think there's a, there's a, a growth of, uh, opportunities that are going to come. We talked yeah. on here one time about, you know, how much bigger can machinery get? Mm-hmm. And I think we've hit that point. I don't know that we can really get any bigger before you start running. I don't know that you would need it any bigger either, really. Well, if you hit it anything bigger now, I mean, we're talking combines that you can't haul the duels in the combine on the same right. trailer. You know what I mean? So you're, if you get any bigger than that, you're going to have to start dismantling four-wheel drives and, and you know, hauling them in pieces across wherever you need to go. So I really feel like we've hit that that barrier there of mm-hmm. we're about as big as we can get. Um, not to say that there won't be a few that get bigger, but... Um, yeah. And I'm just blown away too, by like the ideas that people have for technology and the implementation that they've had with like web apps or mobile device apps and like really providing information for farmers that it's like, why would you ever need this? How would you ever think a farmer would have needed this? But I think it's just making the farming community that much smarter and that much more equipped to do what they're doing and do it really well. And I think a lot of what's driving the technology that we see now has everything to do with the labor issue that we see. Yeah. So much of it is, you know, how much can you possibly do by yourself and still be efficient? And right now we're looking at machines where you're you're basically sitting in the cab monitoring the monitor. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're not really, yeah. you know, so there's going to become a point when a guy says, well, why would I need to sit in the cab to monitor one monitor when I can mm-hmm. sit at my desk and monitor five monitors? You know, I'll hire someone that just does that and then I can just watch how that works. So I think there's... Yeah, I'm pretty excited about the way it looks. I think because of technology, the machines are going to get smaller. There's going to be more of them working in the field together mm-hmm. at the same time. So I do too. It'll be a it'll be an interesting run to see how everything comes together. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting time for sure. Yep, right on. Okay. Well, Delaney, I've covered everything that's on my list of of things I want to talk to you about. Is there anything else you want to add before we shut it down? I don't think so. Just thanks so much, Casey, for having me on. I appreciate it. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. So plug your podcast and your and your network one more time. Sure. The podcast is Ag News Daily. We're on all podcast directories. You can also follow us on social media by searching for at Ag News Daily. And then the Global Ag Network is launching here in probably two weeks, I'm going to say. We've got six, seven, eight podcasts on there right now. And we're looking for more. So if you guys are interested in starting your own podcast or if you think Casey should join join the network, um, feel free to find us on social media at Global Ag Network. Right on. And if someone wanted to contact you directly, Delaney, how would they do that? Sure. They can find me on Twitter. I'm just at Delaney Howell 07. Or they can shoot me an email, Delaney, and that's D-E-L-A-N-E-Y at agnewsdaily.com. Right on. 
Well, Delaney, it's been a pleasure, and I enjoy what you guys are doing, and best of luck to you in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much, Casey. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Dawson Tire and Wheel, their premier ag tire and wheel provider in North America. Get a grip. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Delaney for being a guest in this episode. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at Moving Iron Podcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Here you can find the Morning Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger and Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Please visit the Moving Iron LLC website at movingironllc.com. Here you can find information for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcasts, and articles from Moving Iron Blog. Throughout the year, there'll be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. And if you want to find the podcast, you can find it at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hard work.